Well, here we are already in lesson 10 of our Exodus study. Can you believe it? Now, as we're picking up speed, which is necessary to do in order to make our way through the Bible, I hope you are discovering that while you'll benefit tremendously from reading the entirety of the scripture that's covered from week to week, that it's not essential to do so in order to answer the questions. Now that we are picking up speed, I'll continue to direct you to specific passages that help summarize the lessons. But thank you for staying with us, for joining us, and I'm praying weekly that the Lord is blessing you as he's blessing me as we spend time together in his word. Now, by way of review, in the last lesson, we learned that the Israelites rebelled against the Lord by refusing to enter the promised land of Canaan. The Lord made a promise to their forefather, Abraham, that included the land. It was a gift he intended to give Abraham's descendants. But out of fear, disbelieving God would enable them to take it, the Israelites refused to enter. And as a result, he sentenced them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until the last of the generation of grown men who'd come out of Egypt died. God said that he would give Canaan to their children instead. Now, in this lesson, we find that older generation of Israelites dying out and the younger generation coming of age. In the final year of their wandering, as they moved closer to the land they would claim, they experienced tragedies as well as triumphs. While they had great hope and anticipation concerning the promised land, at the end of Numbers, it's pretty clear that this younger generation was no more deserving of God's blessing than their parents had been. Oh, at times they acted courageously, but they were inconsistent at best. They repeated a number of their parents' serious mistakes. Nevertheless, in God's faithfulness, they were about to inherit Canaan. You know, I wonder how many things you and I have enjoyed today alone that we've done nothing really to deserve. Have we earned the air we breathe? Have we done something that entitles us to taste, to smell, to feel, to see, to hear? Have you ever considered listing those things you enjoy for which you really can't take any credit? I don't know about you, but I find it's easy for me to criticize the Israelites, to look back at their failures and wonder how they could have possibly disbelieved God after all he'd done for them. How could they have grumbled so frequently? Then I look at my own life and I realize that I may not be much different. Rather than confessing my grumbling spirit, I sometimes justify it saying, I'm being realistic. Instead of naming my sin disbelief as it really is, I claim I'm being cautious. Is that what the Israelites thought? And yet, God has been so unspeakably good and generous to me. You see, I too am inconsistent at best. 
but he, he is ever faithful. The overall message of Numbers is that God remains faithful to his promises even though his people are unworthy. Now, we left off in Numbers 19, so we're picking up in chapter 20. Open your Bible with me, and we'll work our way to the end of Numbers, Numbers summarizing the events of these chapters. Now, trying to place the events of chapter 20 has presented scholars with some challenges. Verse 1, you see, refers to the first month without giving us the year. And I could spend a lot of time explaining all of the positions that different scholars have taken and the conclusions they've come and come to, but I'm just going to summarize by telling you that traditionally, this verse is understood to be speaking of the first month of the 40th year since the Israelites left Egypt, their last year of wandering. And of course, that does leave us with about 37 to 38 years with which we have very little information. Korah rebelled sometime in there, but we don't have a whole lot of other information about those years. Now, later on in Numbers 33, we've got a record of a long list of unknown locations to which Israel traveled from the time they left Egypt until they arrived on the plains of Moab, on the, just on the east side of the Jordan River across from Canaan. However, the biblical stories that were given about Israel's journey largely center around three, just three locations. First, Sinai, where you remember Israel was forged by God into a nation. And secondly, Kadesh, in the desert of Paran, or Zin. And this is where the Israel sent out spies and subsequently refused to enter Canaan. And then thirdly, as we're finding them today, in the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, where the younger generation was preparing to enter Canaan. Now, chapter 20, verse 1, informs us that Miriam died in Kadesh, assuming she died early in the 40th year, and since this was also the place where Israel had refused to enter Canaan 38 years earlier, many scholars assume that Kadesh may have served as a kind of base camp for the Israelites during their many years of wandering. According to verse 2, once again, the Israelites grumbled about not having water. The situation really mirrors the event in their first year out of Egypt, recorded in Exodus 17. After all these years of witnessing the Lord's provisions, they still hadn't learned that God is faithful and would meet their needs. God told Moses, speak to that rock and it will pour out its water. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Moses then struck the rock twice. We're told that the Lord passed a severe judgment on Moses and Aaron that day by removing their privilege of leading the Israelites into Canaan. And commentators have sought an explanation for the severity of this judgment. There seem to be three good possibilities. Perhaps this was the Lord's judgment on an 
ongoing anger issue with which Moses struggled. Another suggestion is that Moses disturbed a visual of the gospel, since 1 Corinthians 10.4 speaks of Christ as the spiritual rock. At Calvary, you see, Christ was stricken a one-time event. And we know that previously in Exodus 17, God had already instructed Moses to strike a rock from which water flowed. That had happened the one time. Now, roughly 39 years later, he's directing Moses to speak to the rock rather than strike it. So perhaps Moses disturbed this visual of the one-time striking of Christ at the cross. Third, many scholars agree that Moses displayed arrogance by taking God's role in judging the Israelites as rebels and by implying that it was by his and Aaron's own power that water could come from the rock. Must we bring you water out of this rock, he said? Perhaps that was the sin for which they were judged. Although Moses' punishment seems severe, let's remember he was no ordinary man. He spoke to God face to face. Aaron was also highly privileged. They'd been entrusted with representing the Lord to the Israelites who were already struggling to trust in the Lord's faithfulness. For such men to fail to honor the Lord in the sight of the Israelites and trust in him, as verse 12 states, was a serious matter indeed. According to verses 22 to 27, the community traveled from Kadesh to Mount Hor, where the Lord announced Aaron would die. Moses himself later died later that same year. Both died as a result of their failure to honor the Lord in the incident of the rock. Yet, God graciously allowed them other privileges at the end of their lives. Aaron, we read, was allowed to see the mantle of the high priesthood passed to his son Eleazar just before his death. As the Israelites sought to move from the south to the east of Canaan, the most direct route would have taken them through Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's, that is Israel's twin brother. According to Deuteronomy 2, the Lord instructed the Israelites not to provoke the Edomites. He'd given them their land, and Israel wasn't to attempt to take it. Well, so Israel wanted to pass by quietly, but Edom was afraid and refused them passage. So the Israelites, in this case, took a circuitous route to avoid trouble. Chapter 21 begins by mentioning a certain group of Canaanites who resided not far from where the Israelites had been in the Negev, and they attacked Israel. These were the very people, together with the Amalekites, who'd killed some of the Israelites 38 years earlier when the Israelites presumptively attempted to enter Canaan against the Lord's instruction. Remember that? Well, apparently... This was the first occasion on which the younger generation of Israelites faced the threat of war, and we're glad to read that they turned to the Lord for victory, and we're told that they vowed to totally destroy the cities of this Canaanite group. The Hebrew word translated totally destroy is harem, 
harem, meaning to devote to destruction, to put under the ban, or to consecrate for extermination. And you may find it really shocking to hear that God approved and even ordained the holy wars Israel waged, in which so many people were slaughtered. However, this was not a case in which the Lord merely nodded assent to the will of the Israelites. No, no. The judgment on the Canaanites was the Lord's judgment. The Israelites, you see, were merely his instruments. It wasn't carried out because the Israelites were more deserving of the land of Canaan or of God's favor in any sense. God, in his complete wisdom, determined that the time had come for the wickedness of these nations to be judged. In Genesis 15, the Lord had told Abraham that in his day, the sin of these people groups had not yet reached its full measure. The Lord explained this was the reason he did not give the land to Abraham's descendants sooner. God is so patient. He delayed judgment over 400 years before he took the Israelites out of Egypt and used them as his instrument of judgment on the Canaanites. Now, verse 4 tells us that as the Israelites made their long trip around Edom, they became impatient and began to speak against God and against Moses. They acted a great deal like their parents, didn't they? On this occasion, the Lord disciplined them by sending venomous snakes among them. Upon Moses' intercession, we're told that the Lord uh, had him put a bronze snake upon a pole, and anyone who was bitten and looked at this snake would live. Now, the bronze snake had no power in itself to heal. The simple act of looking was God's unique provision for their healing to teach them that salvation comes by faith. In, in the same way that those who look by faith to Jesus' death on the cross for their salvation receive eternal life. Once the Israelites finally made their way around Edom, they came through the land of the Moabites to the area east of the Jordan River known as the Transjordan, just outside Canaan. A portion of this area that had formerly belonged to Moab was at that time occupied by Sihon, king of the Amorites. And just north of the land Sihon had claimed, another Amorite king named Og ruled. They had done with Edom, as they'd done with Edom, Israel requested permission to merely pass through the land, but Sihon and Og, each in turn, marched out to meet Israel in battle. The Lord gave both of these kings and their armies over to Israel. The victories were significant for a couple of reasons. First, the Israelite tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh took that particular piece of land as their permanent inheritance. Second, these victories, together with that earlier victory over the king of Arad, would have given Israel great confidence that God would continue to fight on their behalf as they put their trust in him and his faithfulness. Summarizing chapters 20 and 21 then, we see that the younger Israelites 
were prone to complaining and impatience, just as their parents had been. However, upon seeking the Lord, they did experience several military victories. Apparently, they didn't allow their inconsistency to utterly discourage them. Discouragement is one of the believer's greatest enemies. Like the Israelites, we too are inconsistent at best. And the principle we can glean from their experience is that the wise person learns from their failures rather than remaining defeated and discouraged. When we sin, the Holy Spirit is grieved and will feel his displeasure. However, once we repent, we're forgiven, cleansed, and no longer under condemnation. He doesn't leave us with a spirit of discouragement and timidity, but with a sense of hope in his power to make us victorious. On the other hand, we have an enemy, an accuser, who works to keep us feeling defeated. Not all discouragement can be blamed on him. Some of us excel at inwardly beating ourselves up. But we should beware that condemnation and discouragement are some of his favorite tactics. When our children were growing up, my husband and I struggled to consistently have a family time of Bible reading and prayer with them as we wanted to do. It just became difficult to find a time every day of the week when we were all in one place at one time. The evening meal we discovered was our best shot, and we'd be consistent for a period of weeks, but then something would regularly come up that interfered. And at one point, we were so discouraged, we really were tempted to just give up. The New Testament illustrates our need to persevere, by comparing it to a race. And I believe it was about this time that it occurred to me that the race we run is actually more like a marathon than a sprint in many ways. Falling in a sprint is disastrous, but falling in a marathon is only disastrous if the runner doesn't get back up again we realized that if we gave up on having family devotions because of our inconsistency, our children would lose all the opportunity to benefit. If, however, we determined to just return to it again and again, no matter how long it had been since we'd last done so or how many times we'd allowed an opportunity to pass by, our family would at least benefit in some measure. You know, a really funny and interesting thing has happened. As adults, our children individually have told us that they remember the example we gave them in having family devotions every night. (laughs) Well, of course, we've had to admit that that just simply wasn't the case. But they remembered it that way. And their words prove that a victory was gained because we learn from our failures rather than becoming defeated by discouragement. From what recent failure can you learn a lesson? If you've sinned, do you find yourself discouraged even after you've gone to the Lord and confessed it? If so, will you 
consider the source of your discouragement and choose to move forward in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of hope and power. Well, we're seeing that the Israelites experienced both triumphs and tragedies in the 40th year of their wandering. At last, they arrived directly across the Jordan River from the Canaanite city of Jericho. Numbers 22 to 25 records accounts in which Balaam, a seer, first blessed the Israelites and then led them into temptation. These events must have occurred in the final months of the 40th year. Now, Balak, the king of Moab, heard about Israel's victories over the Amorites and was terrified, as were the Midianites who were apparently living in Moab at that time. Since military strength had failed other nations, Balak and the elders of the Midianites determined to try a different strategy. They called for this Balaam, a renowned seer, to curse Israel. That was their strategy. Now, this was directly against God's will, for God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. While at first it appears that the Bible paints Balaam in a favorable light, the incident we read with the donkey reveals that Balaam was actually seeking an opportunity to curse Israel. Since Balaam appears to have been cooperating with the Lord and was even granted the Lord's permission to travel with the group, weren't you rather surprised to read in verses 21 and 34 that God was angry when Balaam went and opposed him along the way? Well, the Lord's opposition can only be explained by considering Balaam's motive. And the New Testament tells us something about that. It tells us that he was a wicked man motivated by greed. He must have been secretly hoping to reap a monetary profit from Balak, as Jude 11 suggests. The Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it spoke to Balaam in an audible human voice. The lesson for Balaam was that if God could control the tongue of an animal, he could certainly ensure Balaam only said what he intended for him to say. Balak brought Balaam to three different vantage points that overlooked Israel's camp from which he hoped Balaam would curse Israel. However, Balaam blessed Israel all three times. In the process, God used this pagan seer Balaam to prophesy concerning the future victories of King David and the ultimate triumph of the Messiah as well as a series of prophecies concerning other people groups. Since the Moabites and Midianites had been unsuccessful in having cursed Israel, their first strategy, they sought a different formula to bring about Israel's destruction. One that, as it turned out, was facilitated and perhaps even initiated by Balaam again. He advised the Midianite women to seduce the Israelite men. Sadly, they were successful. And in the words of Numbers 25.3, Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. 
Now, Peor was the location, and Balaam was an idol. The, the Peor of uh, Baal of Peor refers to the Baal who was worshipped, the variety of Baalism that was practiced in Peor. Baal was an idol whose worship included cultic prostitution, a rite in which the worshipers imitated the intercourse of the gods with one another or with the priests and priestesses of Baal, believing Baal would then grant fertility to their fields and flocks and families. So the practice was appealing. I mean, it not only promised the participant increased power and success, but it also provided sexual gratification. Apparently, this is what was going on. The Lord was angry and told Moses to kill the leaders. While Israel was gathered before the tabernacle, weeping over their sin, the son of the leader of a Simeonite, the Simeonite tribe, brazenly brought a Midianite woman into the camp right through their assembly and into his tent to have sex with her. Phineas son of Eliezer and grandson of Aaron, was zealous for the Lord and drove a spear through the couple. Meanwhile, the Lord had sent a plague through the camp. Phineas's display of the zeal of zeal ended it, but 24,000 had already died. Presumably, these, this number included the remainder of the older generation, since the census that follows this incident expressly states that the last of them had died by the time it was taken. So here we find the children of Israel were on the verge of laying hold of God's promise and entering Canaan when they lapsed into a grave moral failure, repeating their parents' sin of idolatry. 1 Corinthians tells us, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. You know, just as Balak feared the Israelites, Satan also fears what God will do through his people. Balak and Balaam were tools of Satan, first attempting one strategy and then another, to lead the Israelites away from God and his purposes for them. Have you, like the Israelites, recently determined to obey the Lord and claim one of his promises? Perhaps you've just experienced a spiritual victory, as did Israel when Balaam blessed them. When we think we are standing strong, when we're in a spirit of celebration, when we're most determined to obey, these, these are the times to be especially careful that we do not fall prey to a temptation we didn't even see coming. Our enemy is cunning and will try many different schemes to defeat us. If you've recently decided to join a group where you receive Christian fellowship or determined to spend more time in God's word, you should expect to meet with various kinds of opposition. You may receive invitations to other very good activities, or an abundance of distractions may come your way. You might suddenly discover you can't concentrate when you sit down to read your Bible or to listen to someone teach. 
the younger generation of Israelites was proving to be unworthy recipients of God's promises. But God is faithful. He is faithful still today. Immediately after Paul's warning to be careful that we don't fall as the Israelites did, the apostle reminds us of God's faithfulness when we face the schemes of the devil, writing, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. When we do fall to temptation as the Israelites did, God may discipline us. It's important that we don't resent his discipline. For since he loves us and only wants the best for us, even his discipline is a mark of his faithfulness. In the remaining chapters of Numbers, we learned that although the Israelites were unfaithful, God was faithful and would keep his promises to his promise to give them Canaan. For the most part, these last 11 chapters of Numbers record instructions about the younger generation's inheritance of the land and its division. Immediately after the plague of Peor ended, the Lord ordered another census of the younger generation. It was the younger generation this time. In chapter 26, we read of that. Those 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were totaled in preparation to enter Canaan. Now, it's possible that this census was ordered partly in consideration of the upcoming attack on Canaan, but preparation for the allotment of the land is the reason that's given here in the text. You see, larger portions of land were going to be given to larger tribes and smaller portions to smaller tribes. In Numbers 27, and then ahead in in chapter 36, the last chapter, These chapters record a special case which would serve as a precedent in determining land inheritance. The question revolved around what should happen if a man died without a son to inherit his property. Specifically, if he had a daughter, could the daughter inherit her father's land? Moses brought the case before the Lord and received his answer. First, the land was to be a permanent inheritance within each tribe. No inheritance was to pass from one tribe to another. Second, if land was sold, it was to be returned to the original family in the year of Jubilee so that no piece of property ever permanently transferred from one tribe to another. Third, if a man who had no son died, his land was given to his daughter. If he had no daughter, it would pass to the deceased's brothers. Finally, if this happened and a daughter inherited land from her father, she had to marry within her father's tribal clan to prevent the land from becoming the property of a different clan or tribe. Now, the younger generation was about to enter Canaan, but since Moses had lost the privilege of leading them in, the time of his death was approaching. The Lord blessed him with several privileges before he died, and two of these are mentioned in Numbers 27, verses 12 through 23. 
the privilege of viewing the land, and the privilege of commissioning Joshua as his replacement. The Lord also granted Moses the privilege of giving farewell speeches to Israel before his death. These are recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. The remaining chapters of Numbers can be summarized as relating also to preparations to enter the land. Numbers 28 and 29 record offerings that were to be given in connection with the many required sacrifices, the vast number of required animals. It indicated possession and prosperity in the land. Chapter 30 addresses the obligation to keep vows, a topic that's related to the sacrifices, since vows were usually made as part of worship and sacrifice at the tabernacle, later at the temple. According to Numbers 31, the Lord told Moses to destroy the Midianites for having deceived and seduced the Israelites at Peor. We read that Balaam was among those killed in this battle. Apparently, this was a local war against a particular Midianite group because the Midianites remained a powerful people group even after Moses' time. Numbers 32 tells of the first tribal land inheritance. The tribes of Reuben and Gad had especially large herds and flocks, and since the land formerly occupied by Sihon and Og was very suitable for their livestock, these tribes asked if they might settle in this land. After Moses received their commitment to fight for Canaan alongside the other tribes when that time came, he granted their request for this land. And as it turns out, the half-tribe of Manasseh, which included the clans of Machir and Gilead, settled there with them. Chapter 33, I've already mentioned, gives this travel log, including many places, listing many places that are not recorded earlier. And chapter 34 draws geographical boundaries for the land to be inherited by Israel. Chapter 35 also relates to land inheritance. Although the Levites weren't to possess entire tracts of land, they were to be given 48 cities of their own with surrounding pasture land for their flocks and herds. Of the towns they were given, six were to be designated cities of refuge. So we see that the younger generation of Israelites had a great many things to anticipate. Several tribes were already settling in the east, in the Transjordan, just outside of Canaan. And soon the rest would finally have their own land across the river in Canaan proper. As they considered the events of the past 12 months, I imagine the spiritually sensitive among them must have experienced a great sense of gratitude for what God was about to do. They'd been inconsistent at times, lapsing even into complete moral failure at their worst. They were no more deserving than their parents had been. But God was faithful. He was keeping his promises. 2 Timothy 2.13 says it for us so well. God is faithful, even when we are faithless.
The hopeful tone with, with, with which the book of Numbers ends is a result of God's faithfulness, not Israel's success. In fact, the entire biblical record is the story of God's faithfulness. So I am going to ask you again, have you ever considered keeping a personal record of God's faithfulness to you, even in the common graces of life and breath? I've found this to be a very helpful spiritual discipline in my own life. Focusing on my own unfaithfulness, as well as the unfaithfulness of others whose decisions and actions have impacted me, well, that can be deeply discouraging. But as I get my eyes off myself, as I keep my eyes on God's faithfulness, I'm continually filled with hope. I believe Jeremiah understood this when he wrote in Lamentations 3, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That summarizes the overall message of Numbers. God was faithful then, he is faithful today, and he will be faithful tomorrow. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.